Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Uh, very often when, um, when we hear really good news, uh, extraordinarily good news, uh, a, a very immediate response that you might have to the news is, well, that's too good to be true. You ever said that? Ever thought that? Somebody says, hey, gasoline prices are going to go down to a dollar a gallon. You say to yourself, that's too good to be true. Uh, sports fans here, hey, the Colts are going to win the Super Bowl next year. Uh, that's too good to be true. Um, I've got a dream job for you, 50% raise, um, six weeks of vacation, and it's offered for you to have if, if you want it. Uh, very exciting to hear that, but deep down what you're really saying is that's, that's too good to be true. Last two Sundays we've been looking here in the book of <clears throat> Mark and we've um, considered the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and last week we considered the death and burial of Jesus Christ. And you might recall if you have been here through this study of the book of Mark that there have been at least three times, the very end of chapter 8, very end of chapter 9, and the end of chapter 10, when Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise again after three days. And here we are picking up in Mark chapter 16. The disciples have heard that declaration from Jesus that he would rise again. And now Jesus is dead. His lifeless body was hanging on the cross. Joseph of Arimathea took it down and laid it in a tomb. And perhaps these disciples were remembering that Jesus said he was going to rise after three days. But you know what? I bet what they were probably thinking is, that is just too good to be true. Jesus rising from the dead, these kinds of things don't happen. One thing we know for sure is that... <clears throat> The disciples apparently didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead because as we uh, will find out here as we look at chapter 16 is the disciples don't even bother showing up to look at the tomb to see if maybe there was this outside possibility that Jesus did rise from the dead. They're, they're nowhere to be found. They, they did not expect this to be true, but there were a few women who did, a few women who decided, let, let's, just, let, let's just go check it out. Let's just go to the tomb. And what they are discovering is that there are some exceptions to that rule. It's too good to be true. And when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, it might seem too good to be true, but, but it is true. And, and that ought to just affect everything in the way we look at our lives, the way we anticipate the future, the way we examine our own sinfulness the hope we have about the future. All of this is affected. If this is true, if Jesus is raised from the dead, it changes everything. And we ought to be people who live with hope and joy and gladness uh, in light of this truth. Basically, what we're doing here this morning is we're celebrating Easter in January. Okay, that's what happens when you go through a book of the Bible as uh, we have been doing here at New Life, and we have reached the end of Mark the resurrection, and uh, this actually does, will conclude our study 
of the book of Mark. We've been doing this for uh, almost a couple years now. We're going to give a, a clap. Yeah, good, good. Um, now, you might say, wait a minute, I'm not sure about that because I'm going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. There are verses 9 through 20. Um, <clears throat> what do we do about those? Well, if, uh, if you have a Bible in front of you, you will notice right before verse 9, it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. So what in the world does that mean? <laughs> so <clears throat> what we're going to do is take some time to look into exactly what that means. So here's the plan. We're really finishing Servant King today. Next Sunday, Pastor Brian will be preaching. The Sunday after that, uh, Andrew Brown will be preaching. On February 4th, we're going to come back and just explore what, what is this stuff about manuscripts and uh, how they affect the reliability of our current English Bibles. We're just going to look into that topic. So rather than unpacking the end of this passage as we normally would, uh, we, we want to look at this issue. It's something that um, isn't talked about a lot in the church, but there it is in your Bibles. Some manuscripts don't include this. What does that mean? I want to explore that. So that'll be February 4th. And then after that, we will, God willing, uh, go back to the Old Testament, and we will look at the life of Jacob picking up in Genesis where we left off uh, there a couple years ago. So that's the plan going forward. But right now, if you are able to stand, please do so. And let me read to us these first eight verses of Mark chapter 16. Mark 16, 1 through 8. <clears throat> when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Holy Spirit, would you please open our eyes and hearts to behold wonderful things in this glorious news of your resurrection this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. <coughs> so, um, certainly when you hear a story of this kind of thing, somebody who is certifiably, absolutely, and completely dead, and you might remember last week that uh, was one of the points that was made is that Jesus really did die. In fact, Pontius Pilate had a centurion go and check and certify that Jesus was really dead. And so when a person is really dead, we just don't expect them to rise again. It is something that seems too good to be true. So if this is true, if it does seem to be too, too good to be true, why should you believe it? 
I mean, we want to be reasonable people. Sometimes Christians are accused of uh, just having a fanciful faith and believing in, in crazy mythological kinds of things. We don't want to be those kinds of people. We want to be thinking, reasonable, rational people. But it does stretch rationality a little bit, doesn't it, when you think of somebody being risen from the dead? So why, why should you believe that Jesus indeed was risen from the dead? And I think there are three reasons. Uh, if you've looked into reasons for the resurrection, these are things that you have heard before. Perhaps this is review for you, but uh, maybe not. But um, there's some good reasons for you to believe in the resurrection. Here's the first one. You should believe in the resurrection because of the empty tomb, because of the empty tomb. So uh, looking at our text here, <clears throat> um, you see that the Sabbath was passed it says. Uh, the Jewish Sabbath would have been Saturday, and you'll see in verse 2 there that it's on the first day of the week. That's when these women show up. So, the Sabbath has passed, Saturday has passed, so in other words, it is Sunday morning. And just by the way, that's why we gather to worship on Sunday morning, because that's when the empty tomb was found. That's when Jesus was raised from the dead. That's why we worship on Sunday and not Saturday. And we have these women named. We have uh, Mary Magdalene, we have Mary the mother of James, and we have uh, Salome. And uh, these are the women who have mustered up the courage to go to the tomb and check it out and see uh, what the scene looks like. And uh, we, you might remember, learned about these women. We met these women last week. Um, we learned a little bit about some of the details of their, their background. They were present at the crucifixion. They were there. And here we're told that they are coming to the tomb bringing spices. And probably the reason they're bringing spices is because um, dead bodies tend to uh, have an odor after some time, particularly in a hot climate. But they also want to anoint him. It says at the end of verse 1, they want to give proper uh, honor and respect to uh, Jesus' body, and so they come with these spices. But, you know, all of this is implying one thing, isn't it? I mean, e even though these women are coming, because they're bringing spices, what, what that tells us is they're not expecting to find the tomb empty. They're bringing spices because they're expecting to find a body. They're expecting to find that Jesus is still dead. They're not expecting that He's risen. And here's one of the things that sometimes people say about the writers of the Bible is that, well, they were primitive, they were uneducated people, they didn't have scientific advancement like we do, and we know today that people don't rise from the dead. They didn't know that. And so they were so gullible, but we can see that it's not the case at all. These women didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead, even though Jesus said that He would. They were coming with spices, expecting a body. Well, on their way, something <clears throat> occurs to them on, uh, in verse 3. They start to say to each other, hey, by the way, when we get there to the tomb, who's going to move the stone? <laughs> Stone's huge. It's heavy. Who is going to uh, get that out of the way for us? We might wonder, why is it that they're thinking about this now uh, rather than before they left. I mean, who knows? Maybe there's being absent-minded. I know many times I've gotten in the car and gone somewhere, and the very thing that I needed, I forgot and had to go back home to get it. So maybe they're being absent-minded. I don't know. But another thing that might be going on here is uh, <clears throat> typically there'd be men around. 
men who would be strong enough to move such a, a, a stone. Uh, and that raises this question that we even talked about last week. Where are the men, by the way? <laughs> There's nowhere to be found. The men are hiding. They're scared. They didn't have the courage to come when Jesus was being crucified. They didn't have the courage to come after Jesus was laid in the tomb. And so maybe the women just overlooked that. Maybe they were thinking some men will be here to help us. Uh, no, they're all cowards. They're all hiding. And so now they've got a problem. How are we going to move the stone? But when they get to the tomb, what they find, according to verse 4, is the stone's already been moved. And we learn from the other Gospels that an angel actually accomplished that for them. And I just think this is just such a nice touch uh, about God's grace and kindness, is that God in His power is not only going to raise His Son from the dead, but He's even going to take that stone away so that the evidence of the empty tomb can be seen. You know, this, this salvation thing, this thing that God has done for us in the resurrection of, the, of, of Jesus, I mean, God is just taking care of everything for us. It's grace from start to finish, top to bottom, even when it comes to getting that stone out of the way so the women can enter the tomb. <clears throat> well, so they, they enter the tomb, these women, and what do they find? In verse 5, there's a young man there. It says, uh, a young man, and um, he is uh, dressed in a white robe. Other accounts describe this uh, young man is an angel, and uh, interesting, it says he was sitting on the right side. I mean, why, why is that mentioned? Is there some deep theological significance to that? Like he's on the right, not the left. I mean, what, what, I, I don't think it really means anything other than the fact it's just a detail that is being shared to us because, we'll talk about this more in a moment, that this is an eyewitness account of something that really happened. And this is a detail that the women remembered to tell to Mark, and so he writes this down. So there's this, there's this angel here. Now, uh, some will point out the fact that Luke and John note that there are two angels in the empty tomb, and some people complain about that. Oh, it's a contradiction. There's one angel in Mark, but in these other Gospels, there's two angels. See, clearly these documents are not reliable. <clears throat> it's a contradiction. But it's not a contradiction. If there are two angels... There's definitely going to be one, right? Uh, Mark does not say that uh, this young man is sitting there and, oh, by the way, he was the only one there. There was simply one angel. He's not saying that. Mark is simply making comment on one of the two angels who were present. So this should not bother us at all. Uh, so what does this angel say <clears throat> in verse 6? He says... To these women, you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, but he is risen. He is not here. The angel is in the tomb, but Jesus isn't. It's an empty tomb. And, and here we get to what our Christian apologists will repeatedly say is one of the chief evidences of the resurrection of Jesus, and that is that it has been historically demonstrated that that tomb, after three days, was empty. 
I mean, you, you just got to think about the, the Roman authorities, the ones who were in power, the ones who were threatened by Jesus. They're the ones with all of the, the resources, all of the authority, all of the power to do what they wanted with regard to this tomb. All they would have had to have done is to find that dead body of Jesus and produce it for everybody to see and say, look, he's dead and he's still dead. And that's never happened. They couldn't do it. There's no record of a body ever being produced. And you might say, well, because, uh, you know, the, the disciples hid that body. The disciples did something. The disciples had no authority, no power to do anything. The ones who had the power and the authority were the Romans. And they couldn't produce the body. It's an empty tomb. So there are these alternative explanations for this, some people say, well, here's what's really going on. These women, they went to the wrong tomb. They were mistaken, so they found the wrong one. They happened to go to a tomb where there never had been a dead body in there. But isn't it interesting, going back to verse 2, that Mark notes that it was very early when the sun had risen. So there is sufficient light to see what's going on. This is not in the dark. It's not in a shadowy time. Sufficient light in order to correctly identify the right tomb. But let's not forget also the fact that it was Joseph of Arimathea who asked for permission to get the body of Jesus and lay him in the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea was a respected, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. This is not just some common citizen. This is not just some peasant coming by and deciding he wants to do something with Jesus' body. This is like a U.S. senator or a representative asking for permission to do something. This would have been a well-marked tomb because it's a well-respected, prominent individual who was taking responsibility for it. And don't forget that Jesus was kind of a notorious figure. Everybody was talking about Jesus. He was the talk of the town because of all of his miracles and because of the crucifixion that took place. It's just not plausible to think that this was some obscure tomb that would have been easy to misidentify. But another alternative explanation is that the disciples stole the body. Uh, you know, people will just try for anything as they try to disprove the resurrection. But that should just strike you as being absurd at the face of it, just because of what I just said. The, the disciples, they, they don't have any authority. They don't have any power. They don't have weapons. And besides, as I've already indicated, they're scared to death. They're not even around. They weren't there at the crucifixion. They're not here with the women. Why all of a sudden would they show up and try to steal the body? I mean, we want to be reasonable, reasonable people here, right? It, this just defies reason to think that they could have done that. And in addition to that, let's look at Matthew 27, where it says, The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, referring to Jesus, said that while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead. So this idea of the disciples stealing the body was something that the Roman authorities actually considered. Lest he tells the people that he is risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. Take special attention to make sure that that tomb 
is guarded and protected and is secure so that nobody can get in there and steal the body. So the only doesn't make sense to think that the disciples could have stolen that body. The, the only proper conclusion that we can draw is what Michael Grant says here, which I don't even think this man uh, was a believer. He passed away in 2004, a well-known classicist at the University of Edinburgh, Scotland. The historian cannot justifiably deny the empty tomb. If we apply the same sort of criteria that we apply to any other ancient literary sources, the evidence is firm and plausible enough to necessitate the conclusion that the tomb was indeed found empty. You know, it's interesting, you hear about people, uh, <clears throat> have you heard about like the veneration of tombs or graves? You know, sometimes people will go to graves um, of their loved ones, for instance, as a way to pay proper respect and reverence to someone who has passed away. Sometimes we do that for loved ones. Uh, sometimes we do that with famous people. You've probably all heard of Grant's tomb. Uh, that's the tomb where Ulysses Grant, the 18th president of the United States, where his remains lie and have been there for uh, over 100 years in New York City. Grant's tomb, people go, they pay their respects because they believe his remains to be there in the tomb. Do you know what? In the early centuries of the Christian faith, there is absolutely no record of the early Christians ever going to Jesus' tomb to venerate the tomb or to pay reverence to Jesus' body. They didn't do it. Why? Because they knew that the body wasn't there. It was an empty tomb. And so this is the first reason for you and me to accept this thing that might seem to be too good to be true, that Jesus is raised from the dead. There's an empty tomb. Okay, and there's a second thing to consider. The eyewitness reports. The eyewitness reports. Uh, let's go back to verse 1. Again, let's focus on these women a, a little more. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and uh, Salome are mentioned here. Um, this is the third time they're actually mentioned. Back in chapter 15, verse 40, their names were mentioned as watching the crucifixion from a distance. Chapter 15, verse 47, very end of chapter 15, it says that they saw where he was laid, and now they're mentioned again. So what is Mark doing? Why is he mentioning the names of these women so frequently? Why is he pounding this? And I think the reason why is because he wants us to know that there were very specific eyewitnesses to the events that Mark is describing. He wants us to know the names of these people. He, he doesn't want to describe them generally. He's going to name them specifically as eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul actually did the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And now He's going to name witnesses. And then He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. What's Paul doing here? What was Mark doing when he's mentioning Mary Magdalene, Mary 
uh, the mother of James, etc. What, what, what they're doing is this. They're saying, here, here are these individuals, and if you want to talk to them about what I'm saying, you can do it. I'm naming them so you can go talk to them to verify this. That's why I think <coughs> Paul says here, uh, uh, most of whom are still alive. Some of these people have died, but m- most of them, they're, they're still alive. The implication is, go talk to them. You know, I mean, let's say uh, I came to you one day and I said, hey, I, you know, this last Wednesday I saw a flying saucer land in Morrow's Meadow. I'm not kidding you. Flying saucer came right down out of the sky and just landed right there. It had all these flashing lights and everything, saw these little green men in Morrow's Meadow. Now, you'd probably think, you know, you're crazy. It didn't happen. But what if I said, Mary was there too, and Pastor Brian was there, and <clears throat> in fact, all the elders of the church, they were there, and I saw Mayor Dan Ridenour there, and I saw this person and that person there, and I just named a whole bunch of people. What would I be implying by saying that? I would be saying, talk to them. Go talk to them. They will verify my story. One thing, if you're fabricating something, if you're inventing a story, you do not want to give the names of eyewitnesses because people are going to go ask them and say, hey, Peter, hey, James, uh, Mark and Paul are saying that they saw a resurrected Jesus. Is that what you saw? And they would say, I don't know what he's talking about. That's crazy. I never, I never saw some resurrected Jesus. And the whole story then falls apart. If you're fabricating a story, you don't want to name witnesses. But if you're telling the truth and you're confident that what you're declaring is true, you have no problem saying, take a look and talk to these people. What's so wonderful about the resurrection of Jesus is that there were just multiple, multiple appearances of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And of course, the more eyewitnesses, the better, right, in any given case like this. And Uh, Here's what a guy named uh, Peter Williams says. Uh, The resurrected Jesus is recorded as appearing in Judea and Galilee, in town and countryside, indoors and outdoors, in the morning and the evening, on a hill and by a lake, to groups of men and groups of women, to individuals and groups of 500, sitting, standing, walking, eating, and always talking. Jesus has always got something to say. <laughs> Jesus has appeared in multiple ways to eyewitnesses who saw it with their own eyes. We have to understand, friends, that Christianity, the Christian religion, is, is based in history. Uh, the, the truthfulness of what we believe depends upon whether certain events really happened. That the Christian faith is not something that can be tested by scientific experiment because we're talking about historical events. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15? He said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you're all still dead in your sins. In other words, this historical event had to have happened in order for you to know that you're forgiven. Uh, this was a long time ago. We don't have the advantage of a camera. No one can produce a photo. No one can send forth a, a video. So we have to rely on eyewitness accounts. And the truthfulness of the Christian faith, therefore, depends on the reliability of these accounts. But it's just so interesting when you look particularly through the book of Acts, how often people are indicating that they were eyewitnesses. This this Jesus raised up, Peter says, and of that we're all witnesses. We saw it. 
You killed the author of life, Acts chapter 3, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Acts chapter 10, we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country and the Jews in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead. We saw it. Our faith relies on the testimony of eyewitnesses. Now, one thing you might be saying is, well, all of the eyewitness testimony is going to depend on the reliability of those eyewitnesses, right? How do we know they're telling the truth? How do we know they're being honest? How do we know they're not just making it up? Well, let, let me at least say this. Just going back again to chapter 16, verse 1, noticing this very important detail about these first witnesses, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, they're all women. They're all women. Why is that significant? The reason that is significant is because women in this particular culture 2,000 years ago, Greco-Roman culture, had such low social status that their testimony would have absolutely no standing in a court of law. Nobody would have cared what women would have said back then. In fact, here's the, the Talmud, Jewish document, any evidence which a woman gives is not valid. It didn't matter to people whether uh, what, what women thought. It would be a little bit like um, in 1861 America, somebody trying to make a case and bringing an, an African-American slave out to give testimony. It wouldn't have mattered anything to people in that time. And the same thing is the case here. So why is Mark telling us this? Because he's being honest because he wants to be accurate, because he wants to be historical, because he wants to tell the truth, because he is a reliable witness himself. James Edwards says this, the presence of women's names attests to the veracity of the resurrection narrative, for had early Christians fabricated the resurrection story, the testimony of women was no way to go about it. If you're making this up, you don't say, my chief witnesses are women. And so we have evidence here that this is a historically reliable account. We also have some kind of strange details here, like you look at the end of verse 8, um, and it says, uh, you know, after they've been told that Jesus is risen from the grave, the women are overcome with trembling and astonishment, and that they say nothing, that they're, they're afraid I mean, wouldn't you expect the exact opposite? Wouldn't you expect like a victory dance? Wouldn't you expect they're ready to throw a party? They're rejoicing. Wow, Jesus really is risen. That's what you would expect. It seems natural, but you get the exact opposite. They're terrified because they've just encountered something miraculous and supernatural. They don't know what to do with it. It just seems like that is more true to reality than a victory dance. And so it ends up being another testimony to the authenticity of the gospel account. So the eyewitness reports is another reason for you to believe in the resurrection. But one more thing I would say is that you should believe in the resurrection because of extraordinary lives. And let me explain what I mean by that. Because of extraordinary lives that kind of developed after 
the resurrection. Let's go back to verse 7. Uh, we got this angel, the young man, uh, who is in this conversation uh, with these women. And the angel tells the women to tell the disciples, it says, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, just as he told you, it says. Back in chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus made reference of his resurrection that he would meet his disciples in, in Galilee. So uh, the angel is taking note of that. So here's what the angel is saying. I, I want you to make sure that the disciples know that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is resurrected. But there's something really, I think, wonderful, something really personal about this. As you notice that the angel mentions Peter specifically, go and tell the disciples and Peter, don't forget Peter. I want the disciples to know Jesus is risen, but make sure that Peter hears this good news. Why would Peter be mentioned? Why isn't it disciples in John? Why not disciples in James? Why the disciples in make sure you tell Peter? Because I think if you might recall where Peter has been uh, the last time that we saw him, he had denied Jesus three times and he had broken down and was weeping because of his denial of Jesus. After he said he would never deny Jesus, he denies him three times. He breaks down and weeps. And you can just imagine what Peter must have been thinking uh, about this time. Man, I've really screwed this one up. I mean, this is the worst thing that I've ever done in my life. Jesus must be so angry with me. I can't imagine how I can have any place in his kingdom at this stage. I certainly have no future as a leader in the church. I might even be going to hell. I don't know if Jesus loves me anymore. He's probably not my friend. He's probably my enemy. Look what I did. I denied him three times exactly opposite of, of what I said I would do. And it's like the angel is saying, make sure you go and make sure you go to, to, to Peter and say, Peter, I want you to know that the Lord is mindful of you. The Lord has not forgotten you. The, the, the angel said specifically that, that he wants you to know that Jesus is risen for you. He, he wants you to know that he is not holding your sin against you. He wants you to know that your sins are still forgiven. He, he wants you to know that you still have a place in the kingdom. He wants you to know that he still has a plan for you, and he is still going to use you. Jesus is risen for you, Peter. Take joy. Take gladness about that. And friends, all of you can do the same. All of you who trust in Jesus, I don't know what it is that you're feeling like you messed up this week. Maybe you're thinking the same kinds of things. Man, I really screwed up. Man, I, I just did something I never thought I would ever be able to do. I, I did this thing so many times when I said I'd never do it again, and I did it again. How could there be any place for me in the kingdom? How could God love me? How could my sins be forgiven knowing the things that I've done, the things I've thought, the things I've said? And I think that the intention of God to let Peter know specifically, I think that is still God's heart right now, that even today and even this morning, that, that he wants you all to know individually that Jesus is risen for you. Jesus, Caden, Jesus is risen 
for you. Karen, Jesus is risen for you. Travis, Jesus is risen for you. Connie, Jesus is risen from the dead for you. Jesus is risen for us, that's certainly true, but you get this wonderful, individualistic, loving care that God is showing to Peter specifically, a discouraged man who needs to be uplifted in the knowledge of the resurrection. And that's what the angel wants to make sure. Well, what's the result of that? Peter hears that, and you know what happens? His life is transformed. He lives an extraordinary life. What does he do? He goes out in Acts chapter 2 and he preaches the, uh, one of the most famous sermons ever preached at Pentecost. He writes two letters in the New Testament preserved for us today. And you know what else he did? In the book of Acts, he stood before the council, that same council that sentenced Jesus to die. He stood there before the council. Here's the man who cowered before a servant girl, couldn't even proclaim Jesus in the face of a servant girl, and now he stands before a council who could sentence him to die, and he says, there is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved but the name of Jesus. That is a transformed man. That is a man living an extraordinary life. That is a man who is different than he used to be. That is a man who's bold, he's changed, he's new. Because Jesus rose from the dead for him. And that's another evidence of the resurrection, friends. I mean, you just cannot deny the transformed lives of the disciples, many of whom went to their deaths proclaiming the name of Jesus. Some were hanged, some were dragged to death by horses, some were killed by the sword, some were stoned to death, some were crucified, and they went to their deaths because they couldn't stop talking about a Jesus who was risen from the dead. Extraordinary lives. There's just no way to account for that. People die sometimes for things that they're mistaken about, but people don't die for things they know is a hoax. And these disciples would have known whether this was true or not. They were in on it. And their transformed, extraordinary lives is another demonstration that this is true. Jesus is risen from the dead. So friends, you know, many things might seem too good to be true. And it might seem too good to be true to you that that all of your sins could be forgiven. That God would not hold against you any of your sins throughout your whole life. Does that sound too good to be true? Does it sound too good to be true that, that, that you would raise up from the grave one day in a resurrected body and then live forever and ever and ever? I mean, be honest. It sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? <laughs> really, good is going to overcome evil and the light transforms and overcomes the darkness? It sounds too good to be true, friends. The good news is it, it, it's true. It is true. He is not here. He is risen. Jesus is risen. These things are true. We have reason to be hopeful. We have reason to not live in cynicism and fear and disillusionment. Jesus is risen. He's coming again. Let's just do it like we do on Easter morning here. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for 
um, not, all, not only all that you have done for us, but that you have declared to us the truthfulness of these things in your word. Thank you, Lord, for the declaration of the eyewitnesses, for the empty tomb. Thank you, Lord, for the extraordinary lives that have resulted from the power of your resurrection. And Lord, I pray that we also would live extraordinary lives as we meditate, reflect, and rejoice in the fact that you, Lord Jesus, are risen from the grave. Thank you for this good news, Lord. Let it fill our hearts with joy and gladness throughout this week and even now as we stand and sing. In Jesus' name, amen.